The birth of the church out of its embryonic state is contingent upon these men we call apostles. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. Johns County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hempton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than three miles from Interstate 95 and less than two miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Well, this morning I want you to take your Bibles and be turning with me to Galatians chapter 1, if you haven't done that already. Galatians chapter 1, and I'm sure as you came in this morning and saw the text uh, published in the bulletin and the sermon title, you realized that uh, this series on the Apostles may go on and on and on. Uh, The Lord may return before we get finished with it. But that's okay. I think there are times in the life of the church, there are times even when you're expositing through books of the Bible, where uh, it's okay to go off on a rabbit trail from time to time. And that's sort of what I've done, is taken the liberty to do that. And uh, we have looked uh, so far at the original 12 apostles and We have looked in biographical summation of their lives and how the Lord used those men and how we can look to them as examples to follow. Again, following Paul's words to the Corinthians where he says, Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. So this study has been in many ways devotional. It has been very spiritual because we focused on all the ways that we can model our lives after the apostles as they modeled their lives after Christ. And we are, by the blessed Holy Spirit, being conformed to the image of Christ. We need real-life examples and models to follow. But we sort of hit a bump in the road, didn't we, when we began talking about Judas Iscariot? Because finally we found a man who not only was imperfect, like the other 11 apostles, but he was delinquent. He was defective. He was a deserter. And that was a matter of our discussion really shifting gears from being spiritual and devotional to now becoming theological. This stone of the foundation of the church, Judas Iscariot, had to be replaced. And so we looked last week at what that meant. We know precious little about Matthias, the man that was chosen by the sovereignty of God to replace Judas. 
So we didn't focus so much on the life of Matthias because we know very little about him. But what we did focus on was more of the theology behind the significance of 12 apostles, the building of the church, the birth of the church from its embryonic state, which existed in the Old Testament, uh, to being birthed into the world on the day of Pentecost, all the things that surround that. And all of that then now takes us to discuss the apostle who refers to himself as one untimely born, that is the apostle Paul. We want to talk about the Apostle Paul. And to do that, I want us to look at Galatians chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading in verse 11. Please stand to your feet in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll read down through verse 24. The focus of our time together this morning will be verses 15 through 24, and I'll confess to you that it's highly unlikely we'll get through all of these verses this morning. But I do want to set the context up for you by beginning in verse 11. Paul writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. This is the blessed word of our God. Please be seated as we ask the Lord's help this morning as we look at this text. Our Father and our God, we come before this text of Scripture, Lord, to look at your word, to analyze your word, and we need the power of your Holy Spirit to do this. We are fallible human beings. We need your grace. We need insight from your spirit, Lord, to see the beauty and the intricacies of the building of your church, the expansion of your kingdom, the appointment of your apostles, what this means for us today, the significance of that. So help us, Lord, as we study this, help us to trust in you. May your grace go with us that you might receive glory from all that is said, that this might prepare us adequately to partake of the Lord's Supper. We pray and ask all of these things in the blessed name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, in considering the Apostle Paul, we are really considering the 14th in number of the Apostles. began with 12 Minus one, that took them down to 11. They replaced Judas with Matthias. That's back up to 12, but really Matthias was the 13th apostle. 
then taking us to the Apostle Paul, number 14. Aside from the fact that as Paul admits here in this passage, that when he was called by God, when he was converted, this revelation that came to him, he says very clearly in verse 17, notice it, I did not go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. That is a way of Paul saying, I did not seek the approval of the other apostles. They did not ordain me. They did not lay their hands on me to be another apostle. They did not cast lots as they did with Matthias, beseeching the Lord whether or not I should be an apostle. Paul says to the contrary, verse 16, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, and I certainly didn't make some trip up to Jerusalem to get some fallible men's opinion on whether or not I was a God-ordained apostle. I don't know about you, but that sounds a little bit rogue. That sounds a little bit like a rebel. That sounds like someone who is trusting in their own personal experience rather than seeking the counsel and the wisdom of the leadership of the church at that time being the apostles or maybe even the elders of the church there in Jerusalem. That would be par for the course for the Apostle Paul because I will tell you this morning that there has been no person in the history of the world aside from our Lord Jesus Christ who was more of a controversial figure than the Apostle Paul. His whole ministry was enveloped in controversy. In fact, there are too many things that we could even say about the Apostle Paul. He was the writer of 13 epistles. He went on three missionary journeys. He was, we could say, and it would not be an overstatement, the most influential of all of the apostles. Certainly the only one that would even compare to that would be the Apostle Peter. And you could make an argument that for reasons that I will give you this morning, the Apostle Paul had a much greater impact for the kingdom of God than even the Apostle Paul. His life was filled with all sorts of drama. He was the planter of all sorts of churches. He was the preacher of all sorts of different sermons. He wrote epistles to all sorts of different churches across the known world of his existence in that day. He was considered even by secular people during the time as being the most intelligent person perhaps that had ever lived up till that point. He was considered by the Jews as the rising star of Phariseeism until the Lord got a hold of his heart. Too many accomplishments, too many successes to list. And so instead of doing that as we look at the life of the Apostle Paul, what I want to do is talk about the controversy of his ministry. Because we're talking about the apostles. We're talking about the apostles that God set apart. The men of God, Ephesians chapter 2, that are the foundation of the church along with the Old Testament prophets. And here is a man whose life was enveloped in controversy to the point that he constantly has to defend his apostleship. The reality this morning is that if the apostle Paul was not a legitimate apostle, then everything you believe about Christ, or at least 90% about what you believe about Christ, is in vain. 
He is the most controversial figure in the history of the church. One Bible dictionary defines Paul this way, the earliest and most influential interpreter of Christ's message and teaching. And if that is true, that means that everything he says, if he's not an apostle, does not come with authority. The greatest and earliest, most influential interpreter of Christ's message and teaching means nothing if he was not an apostle approved by God. He was born in Tarsus, the main city of Cilicia, located in Asia Minor. He was born a Roman citizen, we read in Acts chapter 22. He was trained under the legendary teacher Gamaliel, who was the most noted scribe and Pharisee of that day. We read about that in Acts chapter 22. We also read that in Acts chapter 5 and verse 34. He was named Saul, named after the first king of Israel. It seems that from the very beginning he was destined for something great, but what he was destined for was not what people originally thought. Because he was miraculously converted to Christ through the blinding light of the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus road. We read here in verse 13 that he was on his way persecuting the church. And he says in verse 13, he persecuted the church violently. Violently. This is because he was a prized student of Gamaliel, who was the great teacher of all of those training in the rabbinical schools. We read about this, as I said, in Acts chapter 22, when he appeared before Agrippa. He says to him, in Acts 22, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness from them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds, that is, chains, to Jerusalem to be punished. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? This is Paul preaching to the people, giving his testimony about who he was and who he became. He was part of the most conservative, religiously rigorous group of Jews known as the Pharisees. The prized student of Gamaliel. The one who was the ringleader in persecuting the church and arresting Christians. He described himself this way, you know it well, in Philippians chapter 3, I was circumcised of the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of Hebrew, of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But then Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish or dung in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's how I was trained. That's what I taught. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. 
It is not an overstatement to say that Paul was no doubt resented by the church before his conversion on the road to Damascus, and then he was resented by the Jews after his conversion. He was hated by the church before his conversion and loved by the Jews. After his conversion, he was hated by the Jews and loved by the church. Very controversial figure. He was resented by the church before his conversion due to his intense hatred to destroy the church. And later, he was resented by the Jews due to his intense love for the church after his conversion in trying to defend the church. Hated by the Jews after his conversion. Additionally, he was hated by the Roman government. As I said earlier, in Acts chapter 26, he defends himself before King Agrippa and he begins this way, I'm going to make a defense for myself against all the accusations of the Jews. The Jews had arrested the Apostle Paul. They had essentially brought him to the Roman government so that eventually Emperor Nero, under his orders, would have Paul executed. Paul was exactly like our Lord. You had the Pharisees and Sadducees who hated one another, who collaborated together. They jointly, the Jews, as the leaders of the Jews, hated the Roman government, collaborated with Pilate to put our Lord to death. The same sort of satanic forces collided and collaborated together to put the Apostle Paul to death. The very people you would expect to receive and embrace their Messiah, the Jews, were the very ones who put the Messiah to death. The very ones you would think would embrace the great prize student of Gamaliel, the great teacher of the day, was the very one they rejected and had executed by Emperor Nero. He was hated by the Jews after his conversion to Christ. Hated by the Roman government. He was not someone you would say was lovable and politically correct. He was despised by the religious people and he was despised by the government. Very controversial figure. But there's more. Not only was he hated by the Jews and hated by the Roman government, shockingly, he was hated even by those who claimed to be Christians within the church. He was hated not just by your normal rank-and-file pew member. He was hated by preachers and other teachers. In fact, Paul says this. He says in Philippians 1, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. There were some who were preaching in their sermons, opposing the theology of the the Apostle Paul so that his suffering would be increased that much more in prison. So he would have that much less of a chance of being released because they would use their sermons as a platform to attack his belief system. And behind all of that were the Judaizers. They were detractors from the Apostle Paul. They would go behind the Apostle Paul after he would plant churches, after he would preach sermons, and they would say, oh, I know that you love the Apostle Paul. But out of jealousy, they would undermine constantly the authority of the Apostle Paul. And how they did that was questioning in the hearts and the minds of people in the church the legitimacy of his apostleship. He may say things that appeal to you, but can you really trust Paul? 
He's not a legitimate apostle. Legitimate apostles don't suffer the way Paul is suffering. He's too controversial. He's too controversial. Do you think the Lord would bless a man like that? No, the Lord blesses those who aren't figures of controversy. That's what the Judaizers said. And so Paul constantly had to defend his apostleship. In 2 Corinthians, he defends his apostleship, those who attacked it. He said there he didn't want to defend himself against who he dubbed the super apostles, sarcastically. He said they claimed apostleship wrongly and that they wrongly questioned his credentials. He called them super apostles in 2 Corinthians 11. False apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ in 2 Corinthians 11.13. He even said in verse 14 of that chapter that they operated under the power of Satan who also disguises himself as an angel of light. Paul would say, I know I'm not anything great to look at. I know that I didn't come with persuasive words of man's wisdom. I understand it's easy to despise me. I'm a figure of controversy. I didn't seek the approval of the other apostles to confirm that I speak a message that comes with authority. I understand that. But what I want you to understand is that you know my motives. These are false apostles. These are super apostles. They are the very thing they are accusing me of being. They are the false apostles. He even says in 2 Corinthians 11, I don't even want to defend myself. He says, I feel like a foolish child even doing this. But I'll do it because I care about your souls. And then he goes on to list there in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 everything that it cost him to preach the gospel faithfully. He says, are they servants of Christ? These false apostles? Let me, let me just tell you, I'm a better servant than them and I'm, I'm speaking like a madman. In other words, this is crazy for me to have to do this, but I have to do this in order to defend the gospel I preach. I've had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, and hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. I've been through all of this. In fact, Paul would say, that these false apostles, these detractors, Paul would conclude, these are a thorn given me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me or harass me in order to keep me from being conceited. Paul says, God ordained these guys to criticize me and undermine my legitimacy as an apostle to keep me humble. He says that in chapter 12, and he says in chapter 12 as well that three times I asked the Lord to remove this, this thorn, which probably was a ringleader of the Corinthian conspiracy, and God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And so 
Paul then concludes in 2 Corinthians 12.10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, all of those things. Those are a badge of honor, a badge of courage. For when I am weak, then I am strong. These things don't question the legitimacy of my apostleship. They support it because our Lord suffered. That's why Paul would say in another place, I fill up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He suffered, I'm suffering. He suffered which proved the legitimacy that He was the Son of God and Savior of the world. I suffer proving that I am a true apostle. He was a man of constant, constant controversy. Again, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he has to defend his apostleship. In that chapter, Paul openly admits, I understand it might be hard to believe I'm an apostle because he says there in verse 8, I was one untimely born. That is, I was born sort of at the wrong period of time. I was at the wrong place in the wrong time studying under Gamaliel instead of studying under Christ. And when Christ ordained the apostles, I wasn't there. I was leading a different life. Which leads him to go on to say, in confession, I am the least of all the apostles in the sense that I'm unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. I admit all of that. I admit that. It looks bad. But he would always come back to the reality that he was confident he was an authoritative apostle. Because he says in that same chapter, by the grace of God, I am what I am. In fact, all these things, Paul says, is God's grace to show you that His grace toward me was not in vain, but on the contrary, Paul even says this, I worked harder than all of the other apostles. But it wasn't I, it was the grace of God in me. Paul says, you put the work of all the other apostles together. I worked harder than all of them. More suffering more persecutions, more questioning than all of them. I did more things, planted more churches, preached more sermons, but it wasn't me that did it. It was God's grace in me. How can you deny I'm an apostle by looking at who I am and where I came from and what God has done through me? How can you deny it? But deny it, people did. A man of constant controversy. Now, all of this is complicated When we consider that now our canon of Scripture is complete, we consider the fact that Paul had detractors without, detractors within. You read your New Testament, 13 of those epistles came from the pen of the Apostle Paul. If he is not an apostle, we have a problem. We have a major problem. If he's not a true apostle, then on what authority can he say what he says, and upon what authority can you trust what he says? Not only that, but the problem's deeper. We've worked hard to see, haven't we, the importance of the number 12? John Calvin even called that number the holy number. The holy number 12. Twelve apostles corresponding to the twelve tribes of Israel. They were the new leadership for the people of God, the restored, reconstituted Israel. The apostles serving as God's judgment upon the delinquent religious leaders who crucified the Messiah, disqualifying themselves from the ministry. So a new foundation had to be laid, new foundation stones put in place, so that the church, which always existed in the Old Testament, but in its embryonic state, 
can now be built up. It could expand into the world on the foundation of the 12 apostles. Jesus made a big deal about the number 12. It comes up often. Matthew chapter 19 is one place that it comes up where Jesus says in verse 28, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you will... You who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. I have appointed you to be over the twelve tribes of Israel as a judgment on the nation as a whole, to sit in judgment on them, to be my ambassadors, to expand my church, to build my church. In verse 29, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. This is language of the kingdom. Language of a new world order. Language of a new family of God. A reconstituted Israel. A reconstituted family of Abraham. Some of which would leave their old family. Gentile families converting to a religion rooted in Judaism through faith in Christ. All of that is bound up there. Ephesians 2, as I mentioned, the church being built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament. And of course, you read in in the book of Revelation in chapter 21, Revelation chapter 21 and verse 14 The wall of the city of the New Jerusalem had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. That's just, wait a second here. It doesn't seem like things are going the way that Scripture prophesies. You have twelve apostles. One's delinquent. One deserts. He's replaced with Matthias to add back to the twelve, but that's really thirteen. And now the apostle Paul? Number fourteen? How reliable are the Scriptures? How many apostles are there? Why is this so important? And if Paul was a true apostle, why did he work so hard at defending his apostleship? It almost makes him look guilty. Well, all of this goes back to Mark. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. This is where we began. Mark chapter 3. We'll get back to Galatians. It's not going anywhere. Don't worry. Mark 3. He went up on a mountain. Verse 13. He called them those whom he desired. He came. They came to him. He appointed twelve whom he also named apostles. Why? So that they might be with him and he might what? Send them out to preach. What are they supposed to preach? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? They're there to preach the gospel. The apostles are significant because they are preachers of the gospel. And that is the point here. This is a matter of the purity and the preservation of the gospel. The expansion of the kingdom. The birth of the church out of its embryonic state is contingent upon these men we call apostles. Without them and without the message that they preached authoritatively, there is no church, there is no expansion of the kingdom, and there is no salvation. Because they came with an authoritative message that was largely rejected 
by the Jews of the day that rejected the Old Testament Scriptures. This is really about the Gospel. It's really not about the apostles. It's really about the gospel. It's not really about Matthias and Judas and Paul. It's about the gospel. And that's the exact angle from which the apostle Paul defends his apostleship. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1 and notice how Paul begins his whole argument. He says, Paul, verse 1 of chapter 1, an apostle... Hyphen, I just want you to know this didn't come from men and it didn't come through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Okay, now I can continue my letter. And all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. You think he's making a point there at the beginning of his letter? Beginning of all his epistles, he says he's an apostle, but here he says, I'm going to qualify what I mean by that. I didn't appoint myself. There was no man that appointed me. There wasn't some council that ordained me, even a council of apostles. No, I want you to understand that what I am writing to you comes with authority because I am an apostle of authority because my apostleship did not come through man or from men, but it came through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised Him from the dead. comes with authority. He asserts the divine origin of His apostleship before he even says anything in his letter. In 2 Corinthians 11, he did the same thing in defending his apostleship. He chides the Corinthians for accepting false gospels, and he says they gave an ear to those who proclaim another Jesus, not the one he proclaimed. He chides them for receiving a different spirit, not the one they receive from Him. He chides them in 2 Corinthians 11.4 for accepting a different gospel, not the one they accepted when He preached it to them. Essentially the same argument here. He's defending His apostleship because in defending His apostleship, He's really defending the gospel, right? And He's defending the legitimacy of the salvation of all of those who were under the instruction of His gospel and were converted to Christ. So He writes to these Galatians. This is the region of Asia Minor. It was settled, interestingly, uh, by Celtic people who came from Gaul, which is modern-day France in the 3rd century B.C. Paul, on his first missionary journey, established multiple churches in Asia Minor, I'll give you a list of them. Pisidia, Antioch, were churches established. Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, all of these established. All established before the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. What was the Council of Jerusalem? Well, that was the the Council of Apostles and Elders who concluded that it wasn't necessary for Gentile converts to be circumcised. Faith in Jesus Christ was enough. In fact, they said there, Peter describing to those gathered that any teaching that mixed faith in Christ with observance of Mosaic law for salvation was effectively heresy and a false gospel. In fact, Peter says in Acts 15, if you do that, you put God to the test by placing a yoke on the Gentile disciples that neither the apostles or Jewish fathers were able to bear. The great Jewish fathers, the great apostles, even they couldn't obey the law of God. Why are you telling Gentiles they need to do that for salvation? 
They conclude with that great confession in Acts 15.11, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as the Gentiles will be. But there's a problem. After Paul established those churches, false teachers known as Judaizers, who were Jewish teachers, began to go against the council of Jerusalem. They infiltrated the Galatian churches. They came behind the Apostle Paul and they began to undercut the message Paul preached. But the way they did it was very slick. They didn't so much attack what Paul preached, they attacked the Apostle Paul. Oh, you can't believe him. He's not a legitimate apostle. Oh, let me ask you a question. Did he walk with Jesus? Oh, let me ask you another question. Um, did he see the resurrected Christ? They ignored the Jerusalem council and they were preaching contrary to the council, putting God to the test by placing a yoke of the law upon Gentile converts with their faith. The irony is, is that Judas defected from the twelve, right? He betrayed our Lord because of faulty theology concerning the kingdom. He wanted a kingdom now for the money and the power it would bring him. Now Paul, part of the apostolic band to carry the gospel to the Gentiles, is accused of preaching contrary to Christ when in actual fact the Judaizers are the ones going against the gospel. So Paul has to defend his apostleship. And that's what he does at the very beginning of his letter to the Galatians. He sets forth to defend his apostleship because in so doing he's really defending the gospel. If the Judaizers are successful in undermining the man, then they will be successful in undermining the message of the man, the true gospel. So what does Paul say in verse 11? He says, notice it, Galatians 1, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. And as he will go on to say in the passage that we are going to look at, I also received my apostleship from this revelation. And indeed, as we study verses 15 through 24, we see the great apostle Paul defending the legitimacy of his apostleship. And in doing so, as I said, he's really defending the legitimacy of the gospel he preached. And he offers three arguments to prove his apostolic credentials. First of all, he argues that his apostleship was rooted in a sovereignly pursued intervention. Secondly, he argues that his apostleship was rooted in a sovereignly purposed isolation. And third, that his apostleship was rooted in a sovereignly publicized indication. Yes, he was one untimely born. Yes, he was least of all the apostles because he persecuted the church. No, he did not walk with the Lord Jesus for three years, as Acts 1 says, as a qualification for the selection of an apostle to replace Judas. No, he, he didn't see Christ post-resurrection before his ascension, like Matthias had. But what he's saying here is, I am still an apostle. How can this be? How can this be? Well, notice the first line of argumentation. Verses 15 through 16a. Paul says, My apostleship is rooted in a sovereignly pursued intervention. And I don't want to go beyond this this morning. 
Because what we learn about the Apostle Paul in one sense is true about you and I or anyone who is in the kingdom of God. Unless God sovereignly intervenes in your life, you'll be headed down the same road the Apostle Paul was. All of salvation, every calling, is rooted in God's sovereignty. And so Paul begins that way. My apostleship is rooted in a sovereignly pursued intervention by God. I can't explain this to you, Paul says, in any other way than to say I am an apostle according to the sovereign will of God. And I'll tell you how. Verse 15a. Paul says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul says here, this was all of God's grace. This is based on God's sovereignly pursued intervention of me supernaturally. As he says in 1 Corinthians 1.1, I'm called as an apostle by the will of God. Paul says, this is the result of the will of God. My calling to apostleship, my conversion, my commission to preach to the Gentiles, all of it finds its explanation in one source, and that source is God alone. In fact, notice the contrast between verses 13 through 15, which sets up the argument, and then verse 16, which is the sovereignly orchestrated supernatural intervention. In verse 13, Paul says, You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God. Paul is the subject. And I violently tried to destroy it. And verse 14, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age. And I was zealous for the tradition of my fathers. It's everything about Paul. Contrast that with verse 16. The subject isn't Paul, it's God. But when He, that is God, set me apart before I was born, when He, that is God, called me by His grace, when He, that is God, was pleased to reveal His Son to me, He did so in order that I might preach to the Gentiles. His salvation and calling began with God, and I want to tell you this morning, all salvations and all callings to the ministry begin with God. Simply put, Paul's turnabout, his call to apostleship was a work of God. It wasn't a work of man. The gospel that he preached was not man's gospel, as he says in verse 11. He didn't receive it from any man. He wasn't taught it by any man. He received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, just as he received his apostleship from a revelation of Christ and even his salvation. So that he could say, I am what I am by the grace of God. 1 Corinthians 15.10 You can question me all you want. The Judaizers can undermine my ministry all they want, but I know who I am. The proof is in the pudding. This could not happen. How could a guy go from being the rising star in Judaism and Phariseeism to become who he was for the church? The only explanation is the sovereign intervention of God. The sovereign intervention of God is the only thing that will save your soul. It's the only thing that will save the souls 
of your loved ones and your neighbors. It won't be the only thing that will save souls in this community. There isn't something the church can do to manipulate the community or talk sweetly to the community to get them to come to the church or to get them to believe what we proclaim. No, they need a sovereign intervention supernaturally by God to invade their life and take them from the road they are down and to turn them around and put them on a road that leads to heaven. What was true about Paul is true about all of us. This sovereign intervention began, notice it first of all, with his consecration before birth. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born. Since before Paul was born, and eternity passed, God had consecrated him, set him apart. Before walking on that Damascus road to persecute the church, God had ordered his steps. Before he was born, while still in his mother's womb. This is par for the course, isn't it? Romans chapter 9, Jacob who was chosen over Esau before either one was born. What about Jeremiah, consecrated to be a prophet while still in his mother's womb? We read about this in Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah speaks so candidly about his calling by God. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet. Notice, to the nations. Then I said, Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak. I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Don't say I'm only a youth. For to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Don't be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you. God says, Listen, I consecrated you before birth. You don't have a decision in this. This is what you will do. Now go. Don't be afraid. I've given you a word. Paul's echoing what happened to Jeremiah. Paul says, look, I was consecrated just like Jeremiah. That prophet that you love. Not just Jeremiah, but also Isaiah. We read in in Isaiah chapter 49 earlier in our public reading of Scripture. Isaiah says, listen to me, old coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. Isaiah 49.1 The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. A polished arrow in His quiver, He hid me away. And He made me a servant that I would be a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verse 6. Even Isaiah was called to be a prophet to the nations as Jeremiah was. Set apart in his mother's womb. John the Baptist, the great Old Testament prophet and last Old Testament prophet, was also set apart in his mother's womb. Luke 1, verse 13, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, the father of John, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. You'll call his name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, going in the spirit and the power of Elijah. From the womb, sovereignly consecrated, Jacob and Jeremiah and Isaiah and John the Baptist. 
See, God didn't wait until Paul showed what he was capable of or what he was made of. If he would have done that, he'd still be waiting. The only thing Paul was good at was persecuting the church and trying to destroy the church and in an effort to show the glory of God and the sovereignty of God and the power of God, this former Pharisee was sovereignly converted, consecrated in eternity past in his mother's womb. Set apart. This is the way God always works. You never know who God's going to raise up to be an effective instrument in His hand. Paul describes himself this way in Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart, same words, set apart for the gospel of God. I was destined for this. This is something that God determined in eternity past. Just as these prophets of the Old Testament, the last great prophet John the Baptist had been consecrated, so Paul had been set aside. The foundation stones, here is the point, the foundation stones of the church were quarried in eternity past by the very hand of God and set in place at the appointed time. And Paul was just along for the ride. And he's here to say, I'm an apostle. God already chose to do this. You can question it all you want. I might be one untimely born, the least of all the apostles, because I persecuted the church. But that magnifies the glory and the sovereignty of God even more. It's what I'm destined for. You can be confident that God will always mark out His servants from before the foundation of the world, consecrating them in the wombs of their mother. Always raising up people within the church who will boldly proclaim the gospel, boldly preach the gospel, so that the church will be built up. He's done it throughout the history of time. But it wasn't just a sovereign intervention that involved the consecration before birth. Notice verse 15. It also involved, this sovereign intervention did, not only a consecration from before birth, but a conversion in new birth. Verse 15, But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and here it is, who called me by His grace. Paul says, based on my election, before the foundation of the world, consecrated in the womb of my mother, Based on that, the result was the effectual call of God on the Damascus Road, where God's grace hit me in the face. You could define grace as God's undeserved, unmerited love, His unmerited love and favor. Just skip ahead a few pages in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. This is how God operates. Paul attributes everything 
He now is to the God of grace. Before God's sovereign intervention of conquering grace into his life, Paul was breathing out murderous threats against the church. Now, God has breathed into him Holy Spirit-infused grace. So he's converted, effectually called on the Damascus Road. His apostleship, his conversion, all happening at once in his life. His apostleship determined in eternity past, but his call to be an apostle, his call to be a follower of Christ, all happening in one shot. Before, Paul was proud to be set apart and consecrated as a Pharisee out of love for the law of God. But now he was humbled to be consecrated and set apart as a Christian out of love for the gospel because God loved him first and pursued him first and called him by his grace from the path he was walking on. He had been marked with self-righteousness leading to hell, but now he was marked with Christ's righteousness leading to heaven. And that's why he says, I count all things to be lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord in Philippians chapter 3 and to have a righteousness not of my own derived from the law but one that comes from Christ through faith. That happened on the Damascus Road. His calling to apostleship, his conversion to Christ, both the result of God's sovereign intervention. And so Paul is saying, look, I can't explain my apostleship to you any other way than pointing to the glory of God. This is a matter of sovereign intervention that God is the author of. His sovereign intervention involved consecration before birth, conversion, and new birth. But it also involved, number three, a commission. A commission that would lead to scores of other spiritual births. Notice verse 16. Paul says, God was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now here's where we really need to pay attention because this is where Paul is getting to his point. Paul is startled by God's grace on that Damascus road, confronted in his sin by the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ, stopped dead in his tracks, not only to fulfill what was consecrated in eternity past, set apart in his mother's womb, and not only what was happening right then and there for Paul, which was a conversion, but also a commission that would affect the entire known world to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Turn back with me to Acts chapter 9, which is the conversion of the Apostle Paul. We'll pick up in verse 3. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. He was told what to do. Ananias told him, we read uh, later in Acts, that he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. Verse 16, Paul is saying, this was revealed to me. That translates an infinitive. Apocalypsi is the Greek word. It's the same word, by the way, that occurs in verse 
12, For I did not receive the gospel from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Apocalypsi. Same word used in verse 16. God was pleased to apocalypsi, reveal His Son to me. And that's a prepositional phrase translated to me. It's, it's in amoy. It could be taken as in me, referring to an inner experience, or it could uh, be translated as to me, as it is in the ESV, to refer to an outer verifiable vision. Which one is it? Some commentators say inner. Some commentators say outer. This commentator says both. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.1, I have seen Jesus our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15.8, He appeared to me. This is an outer, objective vision of Christ. Paul literally saw Christ, or what he could in the blinding light. He literally heard the words of Christ. He literally spoke to Christ. This was out and out, an outer experience. This was not some hallucination. This was not some subjective, oh, I I sort of felt warm and fuzzies and I think it might be Jesus. No, that was indigestion from the burrito you ate. No, this is the Apostle Paul seeing the Lord with his physical eyes objectively and inwardly being changed. Paul would elaborate on this in Acts chapter 26. Turn back there with me. Acts chapter 26. His conversion and call to apostleship always came up. People were always questioning it. He's constantly defending himself. Verse 14, we pick up where Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Verse 15, I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you, watch this, as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, that is the Gentiles' eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is Paul's defense before King Agrippa. Paul is saying, look, I saw the resurrected Christ. That's a qualification, right? Peter said, we're going to choose someone, or the Lord's going to choose someone after we cast lots, but it's got to be someone who has seen the resurrected Christ. Paul says, I saw him. I didn't just see him, I talked to him. And um, by the way, this wasn't post-resurrection before the ascension. This was post-resurrection after the ascension. I saw the glorified, ruling, and reigning Lord Jesus Christ. What apostles saw that? They saw Him raising up to the ascension. Later, later, the Apostle John sees the ascended Christ, right? When he writes Revelation, that's not occurred yet. Paul says, I think I'm doing a little bit better than them. I didn't just see the resurrected Christ. I saw the ascended, resurrected Christ. I'm a witness to His resurrection. This qualifies me to be an apostle. This qualifies me to be an apostle. Of course, 
Christ Jesus revealed Himself to Paul for His conversion and His apostleship. But the reason was, as he tells Agrippa, was to be a light to the Gentiles. That was the reason, right? Go back to Galatians 1. He was commissioned that he might preach him among who? The Gentiles. Now, what was he to preach? Well, notice verse 16 again. In order that I might preach him. It's Christ Jesus. He wasn't to preach the law. Judaizers preached the law. Paul preached Christ. That's what he was to preach. That was the message. Who was he to preach to? In order that I might preach him, Christ Jesus, among the Gentiles. Now, to a degree... All the apostles were sent to the Gentiles, right? Matthew chapter 28, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Wait in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. That's the Gentiles. But, Paul's commissioning to the Gentiles outdid anything any other apostle did. Let me ask you a question. From the beginning of time, in the Old Testament, God's purpose and promise came to Abraham, who was the father of the Jews. God said to Abraham, through your loins I will bless your people. But he also said this, through your loins I will bless all the families of the earth. Through your loins I will bless all the families of the earth. Paul says later here in Galatians 4.4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that they might receive adoption as sons. When the fullness of time had come, there is a progressive revelation to God's Word to man. Abraham had faith in the coming Messiah. He didn't know his name would be Jesus. But he trusted in the promises of God that from his loins would come not only a great nation, but a great nation that would end up being a blessing to the world through the same message that was preached to Abraham. And when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, Jesus Christ, who was born to secure redemption. Jesus calls the apostles to then preach that message of redemption. Who is going to be the agent and the instrument of God's message to the nations, to the Gentiles. Well, it's clear here in verse 16, the Apostle Paul. Without the Apostle Paul, there's no missionary journeys. Without the Apostle Paul, there's no gospel preached in Turkey and on the island of Cyprus. There's no churches established in Galatia, Pisidia and Antioch, and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe. Without the Apostle Paul, the gospel does not reach the known world. He was commissioned by God, like Isaiah was, to be a light to the nations. And he fulfilled that. He had to be selected by God. Here's why. There was strong resistance among Christian Jews about how much we incorporate Gentiles into the church. There was an incipient racism 
God says, the only thing I can do is sovereignly appoint this guy. Authoritatively. And I've got to do it in someone who is the least likely candidate. So that when people look at him and they say, wow, this guy was that, he was a Pharisee and now he's an apostle. Yeah, there's only one explanation for that. God did that. His message is authoritative. I listened to his message. I received his message. I was changed by the gospel he preached. I'm committed to Paul. I'm committed to the message Paul preached. But there were some in the church who rejected that. These Judaizers... Why did they reject it? It's hard to say. Maybe for power. Maybe for attention, for money. We'll give just enough gospel to say we're followers of Jesus, but we're going to put the law and attach it onto that. Because um, we follow the law, people see that we follow the law, it makes our status look good. Because if you follow the law... It makes it measurable and objective how spiritual you are. And here comes the Apostle Paul, and he's saying you don't have to follow the law to be saved. It doesn't look too spiritual, does it? And it didn't help that Paul was a short man with a big nose who wasn't a great preacher. He admitted that. I'm not a great preacher. I didn't come with persuasive words of man's wisdom. I just gave you the truth. But through all of that, people still believed. The Gentiles believed. The Gentiles were converted. So Paul will say here in Galatians 1 and verse 8, even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? Paul says, if I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Let me tell you why I'm a servant of Christ. God sovereignly intervened in my life. I am who I am by the grace of God. He called me. He set me apart. He consecrated me in my mother's womb. He converted me, the most unlikely one. He commissioned me to preach. I went. Gentiles were converted. The proof is in the pudding. I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. That same vision, by the way, was received by Ananias back in Acts chapter 9. God appears to Ananias and says to him that he has authority to go. Describing Paul as a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. God says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Look, this is way bigger than Paul. This is the mission that I started all the way back in the Old Testament, that my gospel would go into all the world. He's going to suffer a lot. He's going to suffer a lot. But he's my chosen instrument. Israel is apostate. Their leadership needs replaced. The gospel needs to go to the Gentiles, and it will. And this will involve several things. First of all, it will involve an extension of the kingdom. Turn with me to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 44. The next Sabbath, 
Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. They're filled with jealousy. They begin to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Here's the suffering. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to who? The Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I've made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Finally, the word of God is coming to us on a mass scale. It involved an extension of the kingdom. This extension also involved exhibitions. Chapter 15 and verse 12, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Saul, and Barnabas and Saul related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. It was amazing what was happening. All these miraculous exhibitions of the power of God, the miracles of God as confirming signs. Paul's commission not only involved extension and exhibitions, it also involved excommunication. Chapter 18 and verse 6. Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia. Paul was occupied with the word. Of course, he always was preaching, testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. And verse 6 says, When they opposed and reviled him, the Jews did, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He's excommunicating them from the true people of God as an apostle to the Gentiles. His commission would also involve an expedition. Chapter 22 and verse 21. Paul says, He said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. This is when Stephen was martyred and Paul was standing by, approvingly watching over the garments of those who killed him. This Paul, God said, I'll send you far away to the Gentiles. Paul would travel more than any other apostle. His commission was marked by expedition. His commission was also marked by expiation. Chapter 26 and verse 17. Rise, stand on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant, a witness to the things which you have seen me, and to those in which I will appear to you. He's a servant and he's a witness. Verse 17, to deliver you from your people your Gentile, and the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Place among those who are sanctified. Expiation, forgiveness of sins, satisfaction of God's wrath. This commission will also involve expectation. Acts 28 and verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. I love this. Semicolon, they will listen. Implication, the Jews won't. The Gentiles will. Great expectation. His commission was also explicit. Romans chapter 11 and verse 13 Now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. That's how Paul identifies himself. I am an apostle to the Gentiles. Not just an apostle, but an apostle to the Gentiles to fulfill God's plan from before the foundation of the world. 
Verse Timothy 2.7, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. Or 2 Timothy 1 verse 11, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. It was explicit. His commission to go to the Gentiles was also exceptional. Turn back with me to uh, Galatians chapter 2 for a moment. Real interesting verse here. Paul talks about 14 years later going up to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Verse 7, on the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. Peter was an apostle to the Jews, that is the uncircumcised. Paul to the circumcised, that is to the Gentiles. It was explicitly clear, even among the apostolic band, we go to the Jews, Paul goes to the Gentiles. Explicit and exceptional. Unique. Paul would be an apostle to the Gentiles. His commission involved an extension, exhibitions, excommunication, expedition, expiation, expectation. It was explicit. It was exceptional. It was also explanatory. We'll close with this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. All the mysteries of God are explained in Paul being an apostle. Because he tells us here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason... I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. I I was commissioned to go to you. Why? Verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. There's that word again. Apocalypsi. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is the mystery? This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's why Paul was made an apostle. The church existed in the Old Testament in embryonic form. It wasn't birthed until the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. Paul was commissioned. Paul was sent to preach this mystery that guess what? God's plan and purpose from the beginning is that Gentiles would be believers along with Abraham trusting in the seed which is Christ. Galatians chapter 3. They would be included in the people of God, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, Scythian and free. They'd be part of the people of God. Without the Apostle Paul being an Apostle, God's prophecies, God's plans aren't fulfilled. 
He had to be an apostle. And so he says, first line of argument, I was sovereignly pursued by God. He intervened, he saved me, he consecrated me, he converted me, he commissioned me to preach. And so I do. Now I just want to say this. God does not sovereignly save anybody that he doesn't also call into service. All believers have been converted and commissioned as ambassadors, not as apostles, but to be servants, to be witnesses, to be living sacrifices. Peter speaks about this. We are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. We're called to give our time, our talent, our treasures to give sacrificially with our spiritual gifts, to give financially with our income, to give unreservingly with our time, to give willingly with our love. Why? Because all true Christians were headed down the same sort of Damascus road Paul was. And if it wasn't for God's sovereign intervention and His outpouring of grace, we'd still be walking on that path. We live our lives as an expression of our love and gratitude and devotion to Christ. We're not apostles, but we are to go into all the world and preach the gospel. We're to speak the gospel. We're to live the gospel. We're to be a light to the nations so that Christ might be glorified. That's what Paul did. He is the greatest Christian who has ever lived. And he was the chosen instrument of God to the Gentiles. But that line of argument is not going to be enough. Paul offers three arguments for his apostolic credentials. The first one is that he was sovereignly pursued by divine intervention. Next week, we'll look at the other two, which will solidify not only him as a person of controversy, but also solidify him as perhaps the greatest apostle of all the ones Christ selected. Until then, let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word We thank you for the Apostle Paul who was divinely selected and sovereignly chosen, Lord commissioned, to be one that would take the gospel to the Gentiles. Those of us here today, we're all of Gentile blood, essentially. He is our Apostle. And he preached not man's gospel, but your gospel. A reminder to us as we come to the Lord's Supper table this morning that this gospel came to us by grace. Lord, it is a message that comes with authority. It is a message that we must love and embrace and believe. It is a message that is symbolized in the bread and the cup. So as uh, Brother John plays a hymn here in a moment for us to meditate Upon, Lord, we pray that we might be prayerful and reflective of these things before we take these emblems. As you seal these great truths to our hearts, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.